Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is the co-founder and CEO of Outreach, a sales tech company that reached unicorn status and is valued at $5 billion. He has previously been CEO at the hiring platform Group Talent and Director of Business Development for Microsoft. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And now it's time to welcome Manny Medina to the podcast. Welcome, Manny. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. My first question for you is just to hear a little bit more about your professional journey in your own words. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey, please? Wow, I haven't been asked that question in a long time. <laughs> so, um, so I'm originally from Ecuador. I was born and raised in Ecuador. And uh, my professional journey, unlike many others in tech, did not start with me getting a computer at the tender age of five. I didn't get a computer until I went to, to college. So um, I, I grew up in, in mostly between the coastal cities of Guayaquil and uh, in a shrimp farm on the coast of Ecuador, where I worked in the summers. I decided when I went to college to pick up computer science, and I had a realization that if I were to stay in Ecuador, I would end up supporting software that was built by somebody else. I would be you know, supporting SAP or Oracle or Microsoft, et cetera. So I decided to move to the U.S. and pursue a career in, um, in software. As I you know, progressed through, through grad school and, and different jobs, I, I also then realized that I wasn't the best programmer, that I must be good at something else. And I've, you know, I spent majority of my career between Amazon and Microsoft, sort of like, you know, participating in some seminal events that happened at each of those companies. So when I was at, at Amazon, it was right at the time when Jassy took over and he was given the mandate to turn the Amazon engine inside out and offer it for the world. You know, the insight was that if Amazon was the largest e-commerce platform, are we the cheapest in providing any infrastructure for anything on the web? Uh, and so we sort of played that out. And after 15 years of that, I only stayed there for five, but in the 15 years of that, you know, AWS, you know, just took off. And then at, at Microsoft, I did a similar thing, but I did it for Windows Phone. Um, the story is a little different than the Windows Phone did not do so well. But I learned a lot about, you know, things that work and persistence and, you know, commitment to the vision and so forth. And then I uh, left Microsoft and started Group Talent. And Group Talent actually did not work well either. But what we built inside Group Talent that allowed us to dig ourselves out of you know, running out of cash was what eventually became Outreach. And now here I am, the, the CEO of a 1,200-person company. That's a really interesting story to hear, especially hearing that your roots are quite different, in your own words, to very many other people in the tech industry. Would you say that your background being from Ecuador and having that quite unique life and, and life experience, do you think it has enabled you in any way or impacted your ability as a CEO or the work that you've done in the tech sector in any kind of significant way? I, th I think it has a, a, a big influence in that when you work in manual labor and you work in, in, in the heat, I don't know how much you know about shrimp farms, but you know, shrimps can only be harvested at night because otherwise it's too hot and they decompose pretty quickly as they, they stink. So, you know, you, you start the harvest at the, the coldest part of the day and then you have to work together really quickly to get all the shrimp out of the pools and, and send them into a, to the processing plant. So things of that nature, things like teamwork and, and just having each other's back and this spirit of collaboration and the uniqueness of a goal 
even in the direst of times, right? Like it's not fun to be working at two o'clock in the morning, you know, pulling shrimp out of pools and put them into the trucks. But if everybody's together in it, it gives you a different sense of purpose. It gives you a different sense of the intentions that you're about to go and pursue. And that has really helped me as I continue to grow a company. One of the things that, one of the most difficult things to do when you're a startup is that you have to convince other people to believe in something that is not here. You know, in religion that is called faith, but there is no word in, in business to make you see something that doesn't exist and fully believe and commit and commit yourself and your family, your funds and other investors, et cetera, in sort of bringing this vision together. And what I learned from, from my not growing up in, in technology is the fact that you can't do that. If you if you, if you you sort of like in there with the people, you, if you're all constantly talking about the vision and the purpose, and you're leading, you know, from 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 the front in terms of like you're doing the work with them as opposed to just like pontificating from from the top. So those are things that sort of inform and, and molded my my leadership style. One of the things I always tell uh, my friends and colleagues is that I, I will never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. You know, when I hire support, I did support too. So when I hire customer success, I did customer success too. You know, I did a little bit of programming, a little bit of a design, a little bit of everything. Because I, I have this premise that, I, you know, I would, I would just never ask you to do something I wouldn't. That's really insightful to the type of CEO that you are and, and, and how you like to take on that role. Talking about you being in the role of CEO, the hiring platform that you co-founded rebranded to what is now known as Outreach. And you were the CEO of that company group talent, but also now you're the CEO of, of course, Outreach. So did you always know that you wanted to go into CEO roles and, and be the CEO of, of companies? Well, in a, in a small company, CEO is, is sort of, uh, it's not a glamorous job. So when we started uh, Group Talent, I took the CEO role because it was the only role left. So my co-founder uh, was a, a, a designer. My other co-founder was a front-end developer. My other co-founder was a back-end developer. So when we locked on the idea and decided to sit down and start working on it, everybody sat down and worked on something. And the only job that wasn't taking is the everything else job, you know, the job of like bringing them food and making sure that they're, you know, the, the trash is out and making sure that we know where payroll is going to come from and making sure that we're funded and making sure that, you know, that we're planning ahead and making sure that somebody's selling, you know, what we're building. So there's, there, the, the, the CEO role is, is sort of, it, it begins being this, this nondescript role that is everything and nothing at the same time. Uh, you know, you're always the last in, the last out, turning off the lights and taking out the trash and the first in and making sure that everything is ready for, you know, for your colleagues to come into work. It gets more glamorous over time. You know, once you, you know, get over a thousand people, of course, you have, you know, you have a staff that helps you do things. But, you know, the CEO role is is sort of like the catch hole. And it influences how I am a CEO now. So, you know, the CEO is sort of like where the buck stops. So if the work is not getting done by somebody, guess what? It's my job to do it or find somebody else to do it. So. No, I, I didn't. I never thought that I was going to be in this role. It's just sort of, you know, we were working on it and, and that role wasn't taken and somebody had to do it. So I did it. In terms of what makes a great CEO and what you think is incredibly valuable and important in being a great CEO of a company, what is that to you? What is the most important thing in leading a company? I ask myself that question frequently. And, and the reason is that, I have tremendous amount of respects for for other CEOs, whether small companies or large companies, and and I feel that everybody everybody has developed a leadership style and a leadership framework that I can sort of like copy little bits of it. So I you know I, I talk to CEOs 
almost every other day. And I always pick up some, some kind of tip or trick or I'm kind of like borrowing pieces from, from others, uh, stealing their ideas, if you would, and, and making them mine. My current framework of thinking of, you know, what, what, what are great CEOs is, is number one, you define the culture and the ethos of that culture and, and sort of the rituals of the culture and the artifacts of those rituals, you know, they, they, they come in the form of meetings and all hands and, and sort of like the, the quirky things that you do as a company that really defines who you are as a, as a company. So for me, my trademark is energy. You know, I hire for energy. I make sure that our meetings are energetic, that energy is transmitted from one individual to the other, that we hire people with energy, that the company's known for having this sort of like electric feeling when you're in it. The second thing that is that, that comes along with it is then, you know, making sure that you have the right people that can sustain the culture, that can grow it, and they can bring it to the next level. One of the areas of disagreement between other CEOs is that I don't believe that culture is static. I believe that culture is an evolving thing. And, and for instance, when you think about, you know, diversity and inclusion, it is a way to push the boundaries of what your culture is, because your culture will have to grow to be inclusive to other people that don't work here yet, but they will work here. And, you know, our culture will evolve, but the constancy for us is energy. The third thing um, that is important is trust and trust in terms of the people have to trust me and you have to be able to trust the people. And, and trust is a fairly broad word, but I love, I love the definition from Stephen Covey that has four components. So trust is integrity. You, you know, you say what you're going to do. Intent, that people know what you're about to do and what you're going to embark them on and that everybody's clear. And then on the other hand is capabilities. Are you able to deliver the job and are you capable to do the job? And then results. You can only trust somebody to deliver results if I delivered results in the past. So when that comes together, then you have fluency of business, fluency of transactions, fluency of ideas because people trust each other. When you don't, you actually have a lot of friction and things just get stuck in the, in the rut and, and you, you're not able to, you know, you have to figure out what, what are the trusting issues before you can actually, you know, deliver on the promise. Then the last one, and I picked this one from, from Slutman, is clock speed. I feel every company can, you know, tends to move slower than they should. So, you know, one of the things that I go around is asking, you know, the things are being done in a month, what can be done in days? Instead of days, can be done in hours. You know, a lot of the information and the decisions are already in people's head and they'll be stewing on problems for far too long that we don't need another turn on the crank. We don't need more data. Sometimes we just need to go. And momentum many times fixes all things. So Clocksmith is my, my newest addition to, to great CEO-ness that I'm using now everywhere. And now I do want to touch on outreach and the fact that it is a company with unicorn status, which is something that most tech companies can only dream of. If there is a secret to becoming a unicorn company, what do you think you were doing right at that time that led to that success? It's unequivocally product market fit. And for us, given that we sell our software in, in B2B SaaS and B2B software as a service, there is broadly two types of companies. So one that that you sell the software, the other one is mostly, you know, product-led growth where people come in and so help themselves to it. And, and they both use sales, but we, in particular, just sell the software. I mean, you can just download outreach. I, I think one of our secret successes is that we were clear what we were and we were clear what we were not. So we were clear that we were solving for, for the sales rep. Our true north was always making the individual rep successful. And many times that also meant making the manager successful so that the individual rep can be successful. So we always build product to make the rep successful. Unlike other companies in my space that may, you know, solve for making the CRO successful or making, 
of successful making somebody else successful, we really narrow down the person for whom we were solving for. And that was always the rep. And we sweated the details around, is the rep using the application? Is the rep seeing value? More importantly, is the rep feeling value? Most of the times adoption or success doesn't happen because of some conscious decision or because some math that happened in your brain. You feel like you're getting value from the application because you see your pipeline building, you see you're closing more business, you're going home earlier, you're making more money, you're, you know, you're buying things that you couldn't buy otherwise. So once you deliver that, that little spark of truth, you can scale that to north of billions. So that's, that, that would be my secret. And the secret that everybody should know, nail your product market fit. Like for whom are you building whatever you're building? And do they like it? Do they love it? Do they, are they kind of let go? Because you can sell that and you can scale that into a very big business. So would you say that, you know, a part of that secret as well is, is really thinking about how a user feels in that moment whilst they're using it and also the implications of that feeling? Uh, absolutely. People make decisions on feelings and they back it with data and not all the way around. So how somebody feels after using your application is, is the true testament on how they're doing. You can present all the studies in the world. You can talk about ROI all day long. But if the user doesn't feel that they're getting value out of it, they're not going to use it. And it's going to be a tougher sale and it's going to be tougher growth. A lot of our growth is still now is, is word of mouth. You know, rep used it over here, takes another job, tells manager that, hey, I'm a previous company, I used outreach. I would love to have it here. All of a sudden we're in sales cycle. But that wouldn't happen if the user didn't feel it. Because a feeling is something that you bring with you. A feeling is something that is it's sort of like real state in your mind. You know what I mean? Being memorable is one of the most important things you can do as a human being because that allows you to live in somebody else's head. So that feeling of how you felt using outreach is something that transcends jobs and transcends roles. Uh, so we, we really care about that uh, when we started the company. And now I want to touch on, you know, your knowledge and experience in business development, because you were in business development for Microsoft, but also, you know, that knowledge you've been able to carry through to the businesses that you founded yourself and, you know, you're running yourself. When thinking about business development, because I think people view this as quite a broad and very encompassing idea when when they think about business development and and for some business owners it can be quite an overwhelming thing to try and tackle but when you approach business development and scaling a business where do you start first and what do you think are the most important things to consider in growing a business the most important thing to consider when growing a business is pipeline you need a very strong pipeline of business that you generate yourself that you have control over. Because once you have that pipeline, you can figure out how to convert that pipeline and then how to get better at converting that pipeline into actual business and actual cash. The very early days of generating that pipeline, it's a little bit all over the place because you don't have a process. You don't have your pricing is still a little bit malleable because you really want customers in. So I offer you the product for $30 and you say, I'll give you 25. And I said, deal, let's do it. And then you move forward. Uh, and then next day you try 40. And then somebody says, I'll offer you 35. And you say, oh, you should have done that yesterday. So let's try that tomorrow. Let's try something else tomorrow. So the early days of building a business, there's a lot of trial and error. But the thing that will cure all sins is that you have a vibrant amount of opportunities flowing through the business. The speed by which you close business early on 
makes everyone in the company a believer, A. B, generates enough cash for you to know that there is a real product market fit in the organization. And C, allows you to talk with customers and create your roadmap based on the customer feedback, real customer feedback from real paying customers, as opposed to sort of whatever your vision is. So generating business as early on as possible is the number one priority. And the, and the number one way to do that is to generate pipeline. When you're early, you have more optionality than when you're late. So right now, for instance, if we decide to enter a new vertical, let's say that we want to figure out how to do pharma, that for us is an investment. And I need to stand up a team and et cetera. And I need to figure out commissions and structures and product implications. When you're early, you just try. So you know, I prospected into uh, tech, which was our biggest sector, but then I prospected in automotive. And I prospected into industrial companies and I prospected into consulting companies. And some of them pan out, some of them didn't. But it was a really quick way to learn for whom was the product useful and who would pay me for it. So the moment that you develop a really strong thesis of, you know, who buys a product for what reason in what industry and what is the price point and what is the pitch and how do you make it successful? How do I realize value? And you box that, you can scale that. So that will be the, the number one approach is just create a lot of pipeline because it will, it will cure many, many, many sins. Many of those things, and especially business development, is going to be impacted for a lot of businesses that want to scale quickly by the economic climate and the recession. So in terms of outreach, how is the recession impacting you and your users? And how are you preparing the business internally for this economic strain? Is there a way to continue growth even in this type of environment? Absolutely. Um, we are in a very early stage of a very large market. So just to give you a sense of context, we sell per seat to uh, B2B sellers in the world. And there is 30 million of them in the world. In the US alone, there is about six to seven million you know, B2B reps in the US. And it, for instance, in England, there's another million or so reps. So how do you get to them? And how do you get to them fast? is the priority for growth, is our, is, is our, our imperative. Now, the, the way to get to them is to get through, you know, a conversation with the CRO, with the chief revenue officer or chief sales officer, and attach ourselves to their problems. Everyone right now in the world of, of sales has fundamentally two jobs. You create pipeline, and then you close that pipeline that you create. And those are symbiotic relationships because how you create the quality of the pipeline that you create or the business that you bring in will determine how quickly and how well can you close that business and how you close a business will influence how you create that pipeline. So it's a, it's a, it's a self-perpetuating uh, cycle. And everyone, everyone has that problem in terms of like they can create better pipeline. They can turn that pipeline into, into higher quality meetings. They can sell to you know, more people within the organization. They can close bigger deals. They can close faster deals. They can close deals in, in industries, regions, or verticals that they, haven't, that, they, that they haven't addressed before. So when we attach ourselves to those problems, those are problems that are, that are a little bit independent of the economic cycle, especially when everybody is, is, is moving to digitizing their sales journey. You know, we live in a world right now where, you know, any sales conversation begins with mostly an informed buyer. The buyer has already gone through your website, has already talked to your you know, somebody else who uses your product or have already, you know, seen an ad or something else that, that, that gives him a sense of what you do. So you have to be ready to catch a buyer anywhere in, their, in, their, in the sales cycle and then bring him through. And, and to do that well at scale, you need digital tools. And, 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 and so to literally answer your question, we're doing very well during this recession. 
the economic growth has impacted the number of people who are employed, but it hasn't really changed the trajectory of making sales more digital or making sales you know, more predictable, making sales more efficient. Speaking of challenges, all CEOs face challenges in their role as CEO. It's a lot of responsibility. You're having to be the leader in, in a business through all of these uncertainties like a recession, like a pandemic. From your own experience, what has been the most significant challenge that you've faced as CEO and how did you overcome this when it happened? Well, for, for me, it's uh, it's easy. So we, the, the, uh, we started outreach because group talent was running out of cash. So in December 2013, we found ourselves with two months of cash left in the bank. And we didn't have an answer for it. Like the, the product was not scaling. We were not growing fast as we thought we were. And, you know, my co-founders were doubting and doubting more the, and myself even, were doubting and doubting more with whether what we were doing was the right thing or was it useful in, in the world and in the market. And, and it's really hard to, to continue to stay on something if you don't have confidence, energy, and impetus. So it was then that we decided to build a workflow internally that would allow us to increase the number of pipeline and meetings that we can generate because our hypothesis was that if we generate 10x more meetings, we can actually close enough business for us to keep alive. So we stopped working on our core product and we started working on this internal product that would allow us to grow and scale. So that took one month. So now what I have one month of cash left. So imagine that you have literally a month in which you're going to make payroll and after that you don't have any more money in the bank. That was a very scary moment. And we iterated through it really fast by generating all these meetings. And then I couldn't, you know, I generated the meetings and then I couldn't sell enough fast enough to make the cash. So I turned around and tried to become an appointment setter. So there is a, there is a type of business in which I generate appointments for you and you close them and you pay me for appointment. But in the recruiting space, appointment setting is really not a, a common thing. In sales it is, but in, in recruiting it's not. So the recruiters would ask me, like, how are you generating these appointments? And I said, well, I built this tool internally that will allow me to generate you know, 10x more appointments than, than any other way. Uh, and that's how I'm generating the appointments. And they were like, wait, stop. I don't want to buy your service. I want to buy the tool that you built. So after about you know four or five of those meetings, we're like, all right, we're going to stop doing that. And we're going to sell this tool right now to recruiters. And that gave some cash in the bank. And then, then we realized that you know, one recruiter in a, in a very fast growing company said, you know, we can use you, but, you know, I think you're better deploying sales. And he walked me over to the sales floor and right there, the sales team signed a contract for about 50 seats and the company took off. But the hardest part was not navigating that transition from a business that was not doing well. And we becoming discouraged to a business that just all of a sudden just takes off into and up into the right. That's really interesting to hear that you only had one month's worth of, of cash in the bank. So many business founders can probably relate to that. What do you think in that moment lit that fire behind you and motivated you to keep going? Because it would have been so easy to feel the pressure of that situation and become demotivated and give up. Yeah, I I have a, a saying that leaders don't always call things as they are and not worse. So your job as a leader is to is to make sure that people understand and you yourself understand the facts on the ground do not make it worse. So when you have one month of cash left, everything feels bad. It feels like the house is on fire and you're about to die and there is no solution and et cetera. But th- we had another fact on the ground that was true, which was we built this application and this application was generating 10x more meetings than before. So we had these workflows that were generating 40% reply rates on a cold email. Just so for context, a cold email usually gets somewhere between 2 and 3% reply rates. 
our was generating 40. The magnitude of the step change in performance from what we were doing to what was you know, believed to be true in the market was so substantial that we knew we had magic there. So we, we all grabbed around that fact. And, we, and when, when we see it, you, know, you can see a path to money. So the longer story is that you know, we, we had that. And I went back to my investors who were already done with me. They were like, get, you, you, know, you, you figure out yourself your way out because we're not going to invest. And we said, well, we developed this application that has 40% reply rates. And I think it has really good potential. And, you know, if you give me another, you know, hundred grand, I think we can see it through. And they said, well, okay, you got another hundred grand, but that's all you get from me. So we took the hundred grand, we developed the application and we were still not selling, but we had the conviction that the magic did work. So then I used that conviction and I used that evidence that this was working to, to raise money from individuals back to the story of being memorable. Every week or so I would raise from somebody. That raising from somebody would allow me to make payroll for the next month and next month. It became such a, a, an efficient machine that I stopped forgetting the fact that, you know, I have to raise to make payroll until the application was selling by itself. I, I completely forgot that we only had month of, one month of payroll because I was so focused on what was working. When things are really bad, if you focus on what's working, you sort of like apply yourself to it and relieve your brain from having to the worries of the things that could go wrong. And you can just focus on what's going right and double down on that. You're going to be okay. That's really, really good insight and good information, especially during this period of time when when so many businesses are experiencing uncertainty. And then just to touch on your own leadership style and the way that you operate as a CEO, what do you think is the most important aspect of, of being a really great CEO? Is there is there something that you think is especially important? And do you ever have moments of self-doubt? How do you deal with that? I'll start with the second question. So I have moments of self-doubt every day. And how do you deal with that is that you, you, you breathe through it. You sort of shake it off. You don't, you don't sort of like put it aside and say, you know, there's no doubt and, and try to, to silence that voice. You sort of let it burn up. You let that doubt mingle in your mind and then go back to focus on what's working. I was talking to another CEO the other day and he was, he was telling me something that I could relate that maybe, maybe many people can relate. When you start a business and you're trying to convince yourself that this could be big, right? You, you go on Excel and you sort of like, you know, do some projections and you say, year one, I'm going to make this much. I'm going to have this many customers. This I'm going to, much I'm going to make per customer. Year two, you do the same. Year three, you do the same. And then you sort of like highlight that and you extrapolate to the right, right? And that number ends up being really big, like, you know, five, 10 years from now. And you're like, oh my God, look, look how big this could get. We are now on the extrapolated to the right thing that I did, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago that I myself couldn't believe it, that we could be this big. And now I'm doing that again, where I'm taking that cell, you know, the same numbers and I'm extrapolating to the right and see how big can I get. So the, the moral of the story is that you don't focus on how big you are or how big you can get. You focus on the problems of the now. And if you live in the problems of the now, the now has you know, a lot of good attributes is that one, it calms your mind. B, allows you to realize of all the good things that are going for you. You have customers, you have cash, you have people that really like to work here. You know, we hire people with a lot of energy. So that brings me energy. And stop focusing on all the things that are going wrong, the economy, the strikes and the blah, and, you know, prime ministers, the letters, whatever, like you stop listening to that and you listen to the, what's going on right now. And right now you're solving a problem for somebody who's paying you for it. And that's great. 
let's figure out how many more problems can we solve for that person that is paying us for the current problems? Or can we find other people that look like that for whom we can solve a problem? And those are very discrete jobs that you can take on right now and forget about your worries and your sense of inadequacy. Would you say it's very important for business leaders to look at the bigger picture every now and then and take a step back and, and look how far they've come? Because as you said, issues are only relative to what's happening here and now. So is it really important for you personally to take that step back and look at the bigger picture? All the time. You know, whenever I overwhelm myself with like, oh my God, am I, am I doing the right thing? They might take in the right direction. And what if this, what if that? It's really hard to forecast the future, but it's very easy to focus on the now, very calming and, and, and focus on all the things that are going well for you. I think it was Tony Robbins who said that it's really hard to have gratitude and worry in your brain at the same time. So when you are grateful for whatever it is that you're grateful for, for you know your, your, your health or your business or your customers or your family, whatever, it, you know, it displaces the other senses of worry and, and, and fright uh, and allows you to, to calm yourself and focus on what needs to get done. I just want to touch on something that we spoke about a little bit, which was company culture, which is something that you've worked hard to instill within outreach, a, a positive work culture. And previously, a couple of years ago, outreach was criticized by ex-employees for a toxic work culture. But since then, you have restructured the business, reevaluated, and now you have a 50-50 gender split, you know, at your C-suite level. And you even provide visas to international employees to ensure that you can get the best talent to join from everywhere. This is something that a lot of business leaders and CEOs have to deal with where they need to restructure and reevaluate some things in their business. And you've had a really positive outcome. How did you go about tackling that challenge? So it all begins with really being clear about who you are and who you're not. As a company, we really need to get to get to a place where working and outreach was a choice, not a comparison. And when you make that choice, there is all these attributes that come with the choice in terms of our culture. Culture values are, are, are well-defined and, and I think are, are, are well-lived. You know, you will make mistakes on the, on the way to growth for a number of reasons. So to start with me, I'm, I'm a new CEO. Every day I show up is the biggest job I ever had. So my superpower is that I learn and adapt fast. And I recognize that I don't know everything. And I'm, it's, you know, and, and I'm okay uh, if I make a mistake as long as I have the opportunity to fix it. And as long as we're all clear that that's what we're doing, then you will get the benefit of the doubt in many, many instances. The culture of values are something that you have to live it. So you can't just put them on the wall and tell people what they are. You have to know what grit means which is a culture value. You have to know what having your back means, which is a culture value. You have to know that you find power and, and diversity and inclusion. Those things are lived through processes, through uh, rituals and through the things that you do every day and how you behave. So when you hire the wrong people, especially the wrong leaders, or you, or you may hire the right leaders for that moment, but at a point of growth, at a point of inflection, they exhibit different behavior. The only fix for you is to, is to just get on with it, is to either, you know, figure out if that person is the right person to be in the, in the boat or, or, or not. Now, as we move forward and we move through this recession, we, we are re-examining, you know, what, what, what in our core values are helping us to navigate through this. Because at the end of the day, I have a, I have a, I have a duty to my, my customers and I, ha I have a duty to my, my employees and, and to our shareholders. So 
I think the 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 the, the cultural values that you espouse are, are are really in the service of the destination of your vision and your purpose. Our purpose is to make every rep great and to make sure that they achieve the maximum potential. So it, I think it's only fair to say, are my values helping me get there, especially in the in the current environment? And the answer is broadly yes, but I think it needs another turn. So for instance, we are talking about now of making, um, one of the values we talk about is playful out in that you know we are in an environment in which we have to really leave it on the field. It, it's, it's not okay anymore to, to hold some back or like, or, or not, you know, put in the time or effort, not make an extra call or, you know, really, you know, dig in on a problem, you know, when it shows up right before you're going to, you know, you're leaving, you're going home. Because in, in this environment, you know, maintaining your customers and making sure that they're well served and making sure that you're delivering value for them is, is key, it's is, is primordial, it's, it's, it has non-negotiable. So, you know, as, as we think about the values and what do we need to do to, to get to our vision, I, I think... Um, for us, the kind of culture that we're living in right now is one in which we are very explicit about, you know, we have to play full out. We have to operate in abundance. We can't let the, the noise of the market believe that there's no business to be had or there's no growth to be had because there is. There is business being transacted. Company's still growing. Uh, and, and number three, we, we need to maintain our Im- impeccability in how we do things, how we win, how we operate, the trust that we bring into each other. So, you know, th- those are the, the, the context that we're walking into and in, 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 in how we're operating right now that, you know, we have to figure out how to memorialize that into, into our values. But that's, how, that's where we are right now. You've been quite open about the fact that you're from Ecuador and within the tech space, there aren't that many people from minority backgrounds. And so, you know, that was quite something unique about your experience. And so do you feel as though that impacts the way that you have empathy towards, you know, having a diverse company and, you know, really understanding the value in that? So the answer is yes. Um, and, and it's for a couple of reasons. So I'm used to growing up in a, in a, in a very diverse environment. Ecuador is very diverse. You have, you know, the, the, the most common color of the skin is brown because it, we're all mestizos, right? We're a mix of many things. So for me, not having that around me makes me a little nervous, you know, um, because that's, you know, I, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like where I grew up. So, you know, luckily, the U.S. and, and, and the world at this point is, is becoming a very, a very inclusive environment where, you know, people, you know, mixed people is, is more the norm than, than not. So for me, it's important to, to see people from all walks of life people from, you know, many different backgrounds or, or ethnicities or, you know, who would see themselves different than, than when they were born, because that brings different perspective. And in this world in which innovation and, and pace of innovation is what, what gets you paid and what gets you to be on top, you want as much perspective as perspective as possible. You, you need it to thrive. I think it's also important, and, and we don't talk about this enough, it's the fact that our customers are becoming diverse. And when our customers become diverse, people like to buy from people that look like them. So, you know, it only makes business sense that we mimic how our customers look. And, and that is a very powerful argument for, for diversity that, that I think is just, it's just a straight up economics. You, you know, you have better sales when you match, you know, your customer demographics. I think that that is very interesting. Thank you very much for sharing, Manny. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of the podcast. And it's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Center to bring you the Good News Postcard. Your question today comes from Leah, age 11. 
Hi, my name is Lynn. I'm part of the Jordan Donnelly Centre at Nelford School. And my question is, what is the best and the worst part of your job? Thank you. Um, the best part of my job is that I get to come to work and learn every day. I'm surrounded by great people that give me energy and they know a lot of things that I don't know. So um, it, it, I find learning and discovering new things fun. And, and because we're a, a growing company um, with individuals that know a lot from other walks of life, I, I get to learn a lot. The worst part of my job is really hard to say because I don't, I don't qualify things are as good or bad. I, I look at things just the way they are. But I can tell you that I really don't like commuting. So the drive to, to work and the drive home, it's just, it's a bit of a drag, you know, sometimes I wish I didn't because I, I have to leave. I work at a certain time to be home to, to help out with dinner and bath and, and story time, et cetera. And, and sometimes I'm having so much fun in the middle of a conversation and I have to leave because I have to, you know, make an allowance of 30 minutes to be in the car, just, just driving. Uh, and, you know, I don't enjoy that, but it's not the worst. Could be a lot worse. Well, our final question for you. We are Business Leader Magazine, and this question is, what makes a great business leader? I think a great business leader is one that, that has built an environment of trust where people feel safe and they feel empowered and they understand the trade-offs. Uh, a great business leader is one that brings the best in other people and you know, helps them, empowers them to do something they wouldn't do otherwise. Thank you so much for joining us, Manny. Do you have any final words for our audience and listeners today? I have had conversations with CEOs, large and small companies, you know, for the past few months. And everyone says the same thing. There's business out there. Companies are still growing. You're seeing headcount reductions in the news and, and, and bleakness in the news. But for the most part, the business environment is still thriving. So don't let any of that get to your head. Just continue to operate, continue to figure out how to grow. Things are, 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 are not as bad as they seem. And just focus on, on delivering value for your customers.